thank Alan for preaching the last four weeks on big picture Christianity. We're going to just carry that on for a couple of more weeks through Labor Day, and then I will likely go back to Luke's gospel. But I loved the illustration that Paul used of doing puzzles. Katie's a big puzzle person, and having that picture of the puzzle on the box is critically important. Now, our son Colin prides himself on being able to do puzzles without the box cover, but he's an electrical engineer, and his brain's a different place than ours. But most of us need that box. So you think about the four Gospels. That's like a forest, a small percentage of the puzzle. Let me tell you what we're going to do today and next week. Because uh, Alan mentioned that some of the books of Scripture are just one page. I'm going to do two sermons on two books that are literally just one page. Philemon and Jude. Both are 25 verses, and I've done the math. Ready? Philemon and Jude are .0008% of the Holy Scriptures. Philemon is a personal letter. Jude, well, let's just say it's a bit denser. But we'll tackle that next week. But they're both tremendous, encouraging, challenging, as we'll see. So, But today we're going to look at Paul's letter to his friend Philemon. But as we do, join with me in prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds that by the power of your spirit and as your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today and learn yet again how to live by faith. Amen. I'd like to begin by just quoting from a short article in the Atlantic magazine by a woman named Caitlin Tiffany. The title of the article kind of says it all. Here it is. That's it. You're dead to me. Essentially, she had a conflict with a roommate, and it went completely off the rails, and the roommate stopped talking to her for several months, and then the roommate finally said to her the problem, you are toxic. And so, Caitlin, the author, says, you know, this accusation was upsetting because I crave approval at all times from everyone around me, but I had seen all kinds of advice on how to deal with toxic friends. Generally, by never speaking to them again. The internet's wallpapered with vice. It is, there's no better self-care, for instance, than cutting off people who are toxic for you. There's even a WebMD page about how to identify a toxic person defined aggressively, unhelpfully as anyone whose behavior brings upset to your life. I find this hard to read because surely I've heard everyone I love at least once in my life. But the message is that other people are simply not 
my problem. Did you hear that? Other people are not my problem. So if they offend, cut them off. Now, this little book presents a very different picture of Christian community because when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Christian community, it's just the opposite. Other people are your problem, aren't they? Other people are a significant part of your life and my life. And this is a very short letter. It's kind of like an email that you would send to a friend, very personal. But it shows you how profoundly, simple but profoundly, the gospel changes relationships. And there are three people involved. There's the Apostle Paul, of course, who's writing the letter. His friend Philemon, who's probably a wealthy man and a householder. And Onesimus, his slave, or more accurately, his runaway slave. Now, in order for me to kind of paint a picture of what's going on, let me paint for you a contemporary scenario. And I'll say it like this. Fact one, imagine that you have a job. You work in business, you work at a hospital, but you have a supervisor or a boss. And you've, you don't like your boss, you've gotten bored, and so you cheat on your expense account, you find a way to steal money, you quit your job, and now you've gone off into hiding. You find out that your boss has obviously terminated you and has reported this to police. And so now you're out there somewhere in hiding and you're beginning to have second thoughts about what you've done. You know, living in, I'm running out of money, living in hiding isn't quite as much fun as I thought it might be, as bad as that job was. I have gotten myself into a worse pickle. That's fact one. Fact two is this. Before you quit your job, you noticed that I, Pastor Bruce McRae, had been going to lunch with your boss. We had become good friends. We would sometimes eat lunch in the office. Sometimes we'd go out. And your boss, who hadn't been a Christian, had come to Christ through my ministry, and now your boss was involved in ministry himself. Now, if you were in this situation, you got the picture, you're out in hiding, your boss is here, led to Christ by me, what might you do? Well, you could keep living in hiding, but eating out of that dumpster would just be get harder and harder, wouldn't it? Or you could turn yourself into the police. But is there something else you could do? I know what I would do if I were you. What would you do? 
you happen to know that Pastor Bruce McCray is a super nice guy. Would it make sense if you somehow found me and said, you know, I've made a massive mistake. I stole from my boss. I'm wanted. I'm in a huge pickle. Would you intercede on my behalf? My expectations aren't on high, but would you help me mend fences with my boss? Maybe I'll even get my job back, but it sure would be better than the situation I'm in now. Does that make sense? That is what is happening basically here. We don't know all the facts, but essentially that's what's happening here. Is that Philemon was a wealthy homeowner, and you see that classic picture up on the screen? I think that's from a stained glass. But that's kind of a nice picture of the book. The Apostle Paul is on the left. Philemon is the young man in the middle. Onesimus, the householder, is the guy at the right. And they're all, see how they're all looking at each other? What are we going to do here? It's very likely, or we know, that Paul wrote a letter to his friend Philemon. And it's also very likely that Onesimus, the young man, was the one who delivered it to him as the picture on the screen shows. So let's think about this. Philemon and Paul, got to keep the name straight, Philemon and Paul were very dear friends. Paul had led Philemon, this Roman householder, to Christ. And did you hear where it said, greetings to you, our sister Aphia, probably Philemon's wife, and the church that meets in your home. So Philemon himself, led to Christ by Paul, was a church leader. And church historians say that he actually became a bishop. So he was a significant leader in the church. There was a church that met in his house. Philemon owned this house. Onesimus had been a slave in this house. Let me say... A word about slavery for a minute. And actually, Alan, didn't, we didn't plan on this, but Alan actually mentioned this last week in his sermon on Ephesians, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves, obey your masters, masters, treat your slaves with respect. Slavery was a, just a, a huge extensive institution in the Roman Empire. As many as one third of the empire were slaves. And, of course, it was a very stratified society, as you may know. Men were at the top. Women, they did what they want. Women ran the household, as Alan said last week. Slaves were basically property. Some of them had been taken captive in war. Others were simply indentured servants. But they were at the bottom of the pecking order. And as Alan also mentioned, the the gospel sowed the seed that ended slavery because of its theology of human dignity. But at the time, this was an institution that simply was not going to be going away. Caesar was not going to end it. So the word that comes to masters and slaves was simply, 
this is the hand you've been dealt. Make the best of it by treating one another out of gospel self-giving love. So Onesimus is a slave in the house. No reason to think he had been mistreated, but he was something like an indentured servant, but that's who he was. For some reason, and apparently he probably wasn't a very good employee, because Paul, using a play on words, says, formerly he had been useless to you. So he probably wasn't all that good. But for some reason, Philemon, sorry, Onesimus runs away, probably taking some money. And he goes into hiding. And some, but he probably begins to, be, to have second thoughts. Because in that culture and society, what recourse did a runaway slave have? They might be rounded up and put it into a slave prison, or they would simply have to just sell themselves and go work for another master, and who knows what would happen. So he's having second thoughts about running away. And somehow, we don't know how, he finds the Apostle Paul who at this time, as he says, was an old man and who was in jail. Paul was put in jail a few times, but this is toward the end of his life, and Paul is in jail. Somehow, Onesimus finds him, because remember, Paul had been to Philemon's house many, many times. Onesimus, the slave, probably saw Christ in him and saw Paul is an amazing man. So Onesimus the slave somehow finds him in jail. And guess what happens? Paul leads him to Christ as well. And Paul playfully says, he has become quite useful to me. In other words, Paul's in jail. Onesimus the slave somehow became some kind of a gospel partner for Paul as well. An administrative assistant, an attendant. Remember, Paul couldn't see well. He was getting old. Onesimus became a valuable gospel servant. So do you see the scenario? You have a triangulated situation where Paul... Led a master and his slave. He led both of them to Christ. And now he's recognizing these two are estranged. And their relationship is my problem. I need to step in and do something about this. As much as I would like to keep Onesimus to keep working with me, that wouldn't be the right thing. So this short letter is Paul appealing to Philemon, saying this is how the gospel would handle this. And notice how he says, I could tell you what to do. I could just flat out tell you. But I don't want to do that. I want you to do what you do out of love. Because that's always how the gospel motivates us.
So he's writing this very kind, gracious letter, seeking to deal with this rift that has happened between Philemon, the householder, and Onesimus, the runaway slave, but who are both now in Christ. Got the picture? Let's just briefly think about what we learn from this. Three things. First of all, the book of Philemon is just a wonderful picture of how the gospel reorients all of our relationships if we are in Christ. It redefines how we view one another. In other words, you see other brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters and not by how culture or society defines them. And we're familiar with this. We mention it a lot here at Christ Presbyterian Church. But don't ever forget just what a bombshell this is for that culture. Because again, remember how stratified that society was. You had men versus women. You had Jew versus Greek. You had all the different racial groups who despised one another. Quoted this before. I'll quote it again. The prayer of the Jewish male was, I thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And the pagans also had the same view, even though it wasn't coming from the Jewish religious point of view. Men were at the top. Women were second-rate or property. And, and the slaves were chattel or even worse. What right... What standing would Onesimus, the runaway slave, have with Philemon's master by that culture? Nothing. Nothing. That was the culture that this was written into. And I know that we would say in our culture, well, we're a lot more enlightened than this. We might not be quite as officially stratified, but is it really any different? God has made a wonderful diversity of people, but the human heart just always has to find a way to say, I'm better than you. We're all made in God's image, right? Which means, whether Christian or non-Christian, there is an equal dignity, but there's always, The human heart always wants to say, there's just something a little better about me. I've got more education, or I'm this race, or that race. I'm blue collar, I'm white collar. And you see, in the church, in the gospel, those distinctions don't go away. But in Christ, they don't matter. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, 
then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And remember, in that culture, Paul is using a wonderful wordplay. It was the sons who were the heirs, not the daughters, not the slaves, not the workers. But in the gospel, all of you, man, women, boy, girl, this race, that race, this education level, that education level, doesn't matter. You are all equal heirs of God. And that is why, that's exactly what Paul is saying to Philemon, the slave master. Receive him back, no longer as a slave, but as a what? As a brother. As a brother. One commentator says this about the whole book of Philemon. He says, in the end, I'm convinced that Paul is here calling for a radical reorientation of the community's understanding of Onesimus' identity. He's no longer merely a cog in the machine of the household, no longer worthy because of the utility he provides for his master. Onesimus is now a beloved brother. He is kin. And this transformation is a vivid embodiment of the gospel. He is a walking reminder of the power of good news. We are all walking embodiments of the power of the good news that we are all heirs of God, welcomed into the kingdom, not as slaves, but as brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters. You can see what an amazing message the gospel is to a world that's filled with poverty and where many cultures are very stratified. We had a closing attorney over at our house. That was probably about six months ago because the interest rates were low and we were refinancing our house. He wasn't a Christian, super nice guy. He and his wife had worked in India for a few years and came back a couple of years ago, and now they live here. He had been a defense attorney, and he said that was really draining, so now he's working doing house closings. I got to talking to him about Christianity in India, and I mentioned the fact that the church goes right back to the beginning because... As I've said before, the Apostle Thomas preached the gospel in India, and he said, oh, yeah, I saw lots of old churches that went back to the first century when I was working in this town in India. And he said, you know, it was interesting because, as you know, uh, many in India, it's Hinduism, and there's a caste system. The Brahmins are at the top. The untouchables are at the bottom. And without getting into it all, you get into those caste systems basically because you're born into it. And you're, you're not moving up the totem pole. If you're an untouchable, you're an untouchable for life. 
But he said, you know what I noticed? An awful lot of the Indians in the untouchables class were converting to Christianity because it offered them a dignity that being an untouchable didn't. Isn't that amazing that he noticed that? And this is exactly what Jesus said in his inaugural sermon in Luke 4, where he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why is the gospel such good news to people who are untouchable? Because the gospel says it doesn't matter what the culture says you are, you are not untouchable. You are no longer a slave if you are in Christ. You are welcomed in as an equal heir. And I think that in America, we would probably push back against the idea that we're stratus, right? But we all, there's always somebody telling you, there's all, you could always just be a li- little bit better, couldn't you? You could look better, or you could have more money, or this or that. And the gospel just levels all that. It recognizes the distinctions are there. But in the church, that's not what defines us. Receive Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. And so I ask you, is, do you see your brothers and sisters as God sees them? As brothers and sisters? If not, lay all that at the cross. Philemon, welcome him back. No longer as a slave, but as a brother. That's the first big thing we see. How the gospel completely reorients how we see ourselves and one another if we're in Christ. But one of the big implications, secondly, is that as we see Paul doing, the gospel calls us to do all we can to bring about healing in relationships that have been frayed somehow. Paul knows them both. He loves them both. And now there's two brothers who've been estranged. And Paul again says, Philemon, I could tell you what to do. I could tell you, just take him back, put him back to work. But I'm not going to do that. I want you to be motivated by love. And not just because I told you what you have to do. Now think about it. What would reconciliation between these two involve? Remember, Philemon ran away, probably stole some money. On Philemon, Onesimus had run away. Philemon's part, it would certainly involve forgiveness. Giving up the anger of feeling betrayed by one of his employees. It might also mean just bearing the cost of the money that he'd lost. But it means giving up the right 
for that pound of flesh, for revenge. I'll bear the cost and receive you back. And Paul is very likely telling him, not only give him his job back, but realize Onesimus is now a gospel partner. He's been that for me. He can be that for you. In this house church you're leading, in the shepherding you're doing, Philemon, he can, he's now become a trustworthy man who can do ministry as your fellow worker. But Philemon, to get to that point, what would it take? Real forgiveness, real trust. And Paul is saying, I'm not going to tell you to do this, but this is what the gospel leads us to. And notice how Paul puts his money where his mouth is. If Onesimus has stolen money for you, charge it to my account. I'll pay it back if that's an issue. Here you see someone, Paul, who's doing everything he can to apply the gospel to a relationship that has been pretty fractured. Stepping in, filling the gap, saying, I will pay if that's what it takes to start the conversations of forging a whole new partnership. And that's the beauty of the church, is that we are people who've been called in who not only love one another, but who serve together in partnership in the gospel in ministry. And finally this, why do we do what we do? Out of love, out of love for God and others. Again, Paul says, Philemon, it's pretty obvious what you ought to do. I could tell you that, but I won't. Because I want you to be motivated out of love. Because that's what the gospel's about. You remember when you were kids, your parents told you to do chores. Why did you do them? Because you had to. Hopefully, the older you get, you begin to serve others because you want to. And this all goes back to the gospel because remember this. You were far worse than Onesimus. You squandered your master's property. You ran away. You squandered the father's wealth in a life of sin. And in Christ, Christ paid the debt you couldn't pay, lived the life you couldn't live, and paid that on your account so that you might be welcomed into the kingdom, not as a slave, but as a son, daughter, brother, sister of Christ himself. And that's how we serve. No longer as slaves, but as sons and as brothers and sisters. Let's live that way. Amen. Please join with me in our prayers of the people. Almighty and everlasting God,